I'm just singing that uh, just singing that song that Ernie gave out, O oh, to See the Dawn, and verse 3. Now the daylight flees. Now the crowd, the ground beneath, quakes as its maker bows his head. Man, isn't that incredible? I, I was honestly tearing up when I was singing them words. Um, the maker of all that we see bowed his head and died. What an amazing, amazing saviour. Well, it's, it's good to see you all. Um, first of all, great to see Don and Sue. I haven't seen them for about a month uh, because I've been away and they've been away. Great to see you back again, even though you've been probably back for the last two weeks because I've been away. Um, and also, happy birthday, Bruce. Bruce has hit a milestone. I won't say how old he is, but uh, yeah, great. Great to see you all. We are starting a, a new series, um, finishing on from Luke, uh, and we're going to look at the book of Philippians. Probably out of all the books, like the gospel, certainly for me, are one of my favorites, looking at how Christ came into this world, looking at how he walked on this earth and how he died upon this earth and how he rose again. They, for me, are my favorite, like the gospels stick out for me. But close behind them is this book um, to the Philippian church. Um, it really is an encouragement of um, looking at who Christ is, uh, Christian experience. And so we're going to go through this, and it's going to take around 16 weeks to go through this great little book. Just on reflection, um, Kath and I and the kids have been here roughly coming up two years, and I've thought of the books we've gone through. Um, the book of James, um, 52 commands that uh, James puts in there for us to take heed of. We've gone through uh, Ephesians, in which is we look at the blessings of the church, uh, what we have chosen before the foundations of the world and, and looked at the blessings we have and, and all the heavenly blessings in heaven as well. And then we went through the Gospel of Luke. And that's been great too, looking at how Christ, how he reacted, how he walked and how he lived and how he died. And that's been great. But my challenge when I thought about this, that we've gone through these three books since we've been here, is have they touched me? Have I heard God's voice in these three great books? Different books, um, but God's word nonetheless. Has he spoken to me as, I've, as the word of God has been opened up? And that's a challenge to me as I look back over the two years. Um, there'll be three reasons, there'll be more, but basically three reasons why it hasn't touched me. Either God's word is not relevant and not powerful, Either the speakers are no good, and yeah, don't be laughing already, or, or maybe it's my fault, and maybe it's your fault that you haven't heard his word. I believe our speakers have been good enough, certainly with around the churches I've been. I believe God's word is powerful and relevant. We can't blame that. And I want to encourage you, like as we go through the books, read the chapter ahead before you come into it, study it, look at it. And just see if God is speaking to you. It's so, so important. And what kind of got me clicking is, is I think the guy's here today. He might not be. But I was talking to an elderly guy from here. And he said he was a wee bit down. 
And so he said on his daily reading, he was going through the book of Nehemiah. And as he went through it, he saw how Nehemiah and one hand trowel, other hand, building the wall of Jerusalem, got down and was frustrated at the, at the amount of time that it was taking him. And he said, as I read that word of God, it was so applicable to me. And that's great. And I, was, I said, brilliant. Fantastic to hear that God's word is speaking to you. And that's the way it should be for us as well. So I hope if it hasn't, if two years have passed and you haven't heard from God's word, you haven't experienced him, may you just take a good look at yourself and go, right, today, today, maybe this is God speaking to me. I really hope so, going through this great book, this epistle of Paul. As you know, uh, Kath and I have three children. We have three kids, Thomas, Caitlin, and Emily. I had the privilege of changing two of their nappies as they were growing up. I think from memory I changed Thomas's nappies twice, Caitlin's once, and the third one, Emily, I'd done enough, and so I retired then. Look back, I remember taking Tom back from the hospital. He was our first, and um, we arrived home with our uh, uh, modern baby seat, cost us a fortune, and we plonked him down in the lounge and thought to ourselves, what then? Like, there's no book. There's no instruction manual. We felt really alone. It's like, so we put him to bed? Do you feed him? I mean, it was an incredible feeling of just helplessness um, as our first was born. As time went on, you know, our children, as we look back, you know, he started walking, um, he started kindy, he went to school, he played soccer, etc. And the girls were the same, they started walking. Uh, believe it or not, Caitlin, actually looking back at some photos, was so fat that when she sat down, you couldn't push her over. But, and I look back at that and think, wow, how they have changed our children. Even to the point that I look back now, Kath and I, I don't know if she wants me saying this, but we actually, one of our babies was quite ugly. Um, we thought it was the greatest baby in the world, you know, looked beautiful. But when we look back at the photos, he was a bit undernourished a wee bit, I thought. And, um, but anyway, I won't mention who that is because we love him very much. <laughs> now, anyway. But as life goes on, our kids grow up. And as I say, they, they, they change, they mature, and they go up, grow up. Uh, and that's the way it's meant to be in life, eh? as you look back off your children or anything else that you do. And so it is with the church at Philippi here. Um, they started off, and we're going to look how they started off from Acts 16. They started off really rough. I mean, the people who were converted weren't the kind of A-team you want to start a church. But over the years... Uh, and it's only roughly, commentators say, from when Acts 16 was and Paul's letter to Philippians is around 10 to 15 years. And so, but they have matured. And I look at my kids and see how Tom's driving my wife's car now, which is incredible. And yet, he has matured into this young man. So did Philippians, their church. They started roughly with just a few and oh, how they matured. And maturity doesn't mean they're an old church. It means they were, they were just focused on Christ and what he has done. And uh, we're going to have a look um, at this church, basically the background today, and if I have time, um, the first two verses of chapter one. And I want to quickly go through 
um, the relevance of this book. Is this book relevant for today? The theme of this book, um, the history or the big picture of this book, there's six challenges I want to look at for the church and then briefly look at the beautiful greeting that Paul starts often. And so the first one, the relevance of this book of Philippians. Is it relevant for us today? And there's around uh, five themes, if you like, that I'll look at very, very quickly because I've got a lot to go through. Relevancy number one, this letter should encourage us to live for Christ courageously. That's the number one thing I see going through this book. We really should take courage and live for our Savior. Secondly, um, where do we find our true joy? Where do you get it from? Paul answers it in this letter. Where do we get our true joy from? Remember, Paul is writing from a Roman prison here. And yet he can say in chapter 2, 17 and 18, he says, I rejoice, so you rejoice also. He doesn't say, I rejoice in my house, I rejoice in my wife, I rejoice in my kids, I rejoice in my bank account, because actually Paul had none of them. No, he says, I rejoice that I know him, the saviour of the world, the Lord Jesus, and in knowing him, I rejoice. And so that can be relevant, very relevant for us. Number three, where will you find true meaning and purpose in life? Well, take a look at this book and you will find it there. Or should I say, you will find him there. If you want, you could say that there's a banner written over this book and it's found in chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What an incredible statement Paul says. He wasn't joking. He wasn't in a spiritual mood. He could say of himself, for him to live was just Christ. Everything about it. And you know what? If he is killed or he dies, which he was, it will be gain. That's fantastic. I wonder if we think like that. Fourthly, do we need encouraging? then this letter provides marvellous application for us, doesn't it? For building and sustaining true community in our church. And fifthly and lastly, does our church need to grow in unity? Does our church here in 2016 need to grow in unity? Of course it does, because every church does, even this church which Paul writes to here. He could say of this church, he refers to them in chapter 4 and verse 1, you, uh, Philippians, you are my joy and my crown. But you know what? In the next verse, there's a problem. There's disunity in this church in chapter 4 and verse 2. And so, yes, they are, for him, his joy and crown. They have matured, they are going on, they are Christ-centered, but there's still disunity in the church at Philippi. And so that is so relevant for us as well. What are the themes? Well, there are many themes going through here. There is devotedness as one. I mean, in chapter one, we have the character of devotedness. Chapter two, we have examples of Christ's devotedness. 
In chapter 3, we have the path of devotedness. Chapter 4, the hindrance. And uh, 2, devotedness and the remedy for it, all in chapter 4. So being devoted, whether it's to one another or to Christ or to the fellowship, um, that is a major theme going through this book. Also, fellowship is one. You'll find it seven times mentioned, uh, that word fellowship. Fellowship in the gospel, fellowship in grace, fellowship in the spirit, fellowship in his sufferings, fellowship in affliction, fellowship in ministry, and fellowship in giving. And so that is a big theme, winding its way through. And also, the last one that I want to mention, and there's many more, is joy or rejoicing. 20 times through this book, that word that is connected with joy, like rejoicing, is mentioned 20 times. And so through this book, we can rejoice and find true joy. Looking through it, the background, how did this church start? How did the church at um, Philippi um, start? And we, to do it properly, I should read uh, Acts 16, because there, that is uh, Paul's first mission, uh, not first, but his missionary um, plant, if you like, going to Macedonia, which is a major area. Uh, Philippi was a major area, a metropolitan area in that region, if you like, mostly Roman. It was part of the Roman Empire. Um, a city would have teamed at Philippi. It would have teamed with industry, businesses, agriculture, and also art. Good city had all, a bit like Auckland. It would have it all, if you like. Uh, we can read through Acts, and, and, and as I say, to, if you want to, and if you want to do a wee bit of homework, read through the book of Acts, or Acts chapter 16, and you'll find this church here at Philippi, and a lot more detail that I'm going to give you. And so the Apostle Paul, he had a vision. He saw a man in Acts 16 uh, in his vision um, from Macedonia, and this man was calling for help. And Paul took this as a spiritual calling. So without delay, Paul and his three companions, uh, Silas, Luke, and also his young protege, Timothy, set off for this place, Macedonia, in which brought them to a city of Philippi. Um, we see Paul going through the city looking for a synagogue. He would have been looking more than likely for a synagogue, a place of worship for the Jewish believers. But instead, what he basically finds is a woman's Bible study. Um, and that really, for us, shows what Philippi was like. There was a lack of, you know, the gospel probably hadn't got there yet. And also, it was so um, populated by the Romans. It was to be honest, it's a wee bit like, and I don't I hope this is not offensive, but it's like Cambridge, but a lot bigger. And you know how all the retired um, dairy farmers seem to go to Cambridge? Well, this was like all the retired Roman soldiers and everything go to Philippi to retire. And so there was a real lack of Jewish presence there. And we know, as I said, Paul would normally sort out this Jewish house of worship, and he would go there first and proclaim the gospel to show them that the Messiah had come that he had suffered, that he had died, and he had rose again for the sin of the world. But it seems he couldn't find one, which shows what this city was really like. Instead, he turns up and he finds these, these missionaries, him, Luke, Silas, and Timothy, finds a group of religious women having a Sabbath service beside the river. And this is where Paul first meets a woman named Lydia. And this will be the start of the church at Philippi. 
by this woman, Lydia. What do we know about this woman? Well, she was from the city of Thyatira, uh, I think is how... Th- yes, that as well. Both cities. And it tells us that she is likely to have been Asian. Should have been an Asian woman if she was from that region. Um, she had a house in Philippi and she was more than likely very wealthy because she sold um, a seller of purple, Acts 16 tells us in verse 14. And from this we can understand that Lydia is a seeker of God. She was seeking after who God was. Maybe didn't know the whole truth and had the whole truth, but she could see that more than likely in the Jewish writings that there was something there in the law. And so she was seeking after God and who he is and how to connect with him. And so this apostle Paul shows up. More than likely he explains that God gave the law to reveal the fallenness of man, but the glory of God, and that the atonement that was made through the Lord Jesus is the only way to get to him and have a relationship with him. So Paul engages or Paul engages Lydia's reason, if you like. He engages her intellect, and through this knowledge, she becomes a believer in Christ. So the first convert in the city of Philippi. But the story, like the church, becomes more complex than that, doesn't it? As Acts 16 continues, we see that the mission in Philippi reveals the diversity of the church being planted here. You know, it'd be great for Paul to go, right, who are the other wealthy women that might have wealthy men and will start a, you know, a real A-grade church here? This will be fantastic. But the funny thing is, as Paul and his um, men, uh, missionaries, are walking along, a girl follows them, a young slave girl. She is demon-possessed. And she runs around and follows them day after day, crying out, these men's men are servants of the Most High, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. I'm not quite sure why the demon decided to do that, whether it's through mockery, but that's what she did day after day. And I find it very amusing on this great apostle Paul that it says he became greatly annoyed. <laughs> and uh, how frustrated. It took two days, two or three days. So... Paul had great patience. Can you imagine going out and ministering in the street or the corner or door to door and there was a girl, a young girl following you, crying out with crazy stuff? How many minutes would it take you to actually turn around and rebuke her? But Paul, it says, day after day, and now Paul is annoyed. <laughs> Good stuff. And, uh, and so he commands the spirit to come out. Uh, and it does, and... We can guess that she is probably converted because her owners, uh, she was owned, she was slave, didn't want her anymore. Uh, and so more than likely she was no good to them, no profit was coming for her, from her. The owners didn't want her, so more than likely we can assume that she was converted. This little girl, though, stands absolutely in contrast, doesn't it, to Lydia. Lydia was Asian. This girl was more than likely Greek. Where Lydia was in control and an intellect, quite brainy, this little girl was impoverished, enslaved and exploited. Lydia was a seeker. This girl was crazy. She proclaims the way of salvation through demonic control. Paul meets Lydia in the context of a formal meeting. You know, it was a wee Bible study looking for the truth. 
the slave girl is screaming her head off. As in control as Lydia is, this girl is out of control. And because of this little girl, in stark contrast, contrast, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. What do, they do, what do they do in prison? Well, they sing praises to God and pray to him and preach the gospel. An earthquake happens as they're in, in, uh, in prison. Um, the gates are open, the shackles are loosed, and the Philippian jailer is there. Now he is just a common Joe guy. He knows that if, as he looks at this earthquake, his prisoners are gone. Instant death for him. So he decides to bring it forward and commit suicide. But Paul and Silas are still there. And they say, we're still here. You don't have to commit suicide. And then he looks at them by their example and says to them, what must I do to be saved? And they say to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Of course, he has baptized him and his household. The jailer now is not like the other two characters, is he? He is not seeking. He is not demon-possessed either. He is not super rich. He's not super poor. He's probably just Joe Average. He's not upper class. He's not lower. He's just an ordinary man. Amazingly, this is how the Philippian church starts, by these three converts. Everything about them is different. Everything. One's Asian, one's Greek, more than likely this jailer's a Roman. One's wealthy, one's poor, one's blue-collared. They were all saved differently, one by words and intellect, one by deeds, which is uh, casting out the demon, and the other by example. But all of them, even though they were so different, there was one thing that they all had in common. They were lost and needed a saviour. And the saviour was presented to them, and they trusted in him. And so here's the start of this church, this great, great church that starts off in this Roman, outward Roman city. No synagogue, no Christian gathering, but here it starts here with these three people. What is the big picture here? Paul writes this, and, and really he writes this, it's one of the very few um, epistles, if you like, that theologically he doesn't get into an argument with them or try and correct them. It's a real encouragement, if you like. They did have a few problems, and we'll see that in chapter 4, whoever takes that up. But really, Paul just wants to encourage these people of what they have done and where they're going. And um, one of the very few epistles, as I said, that Paul does that with. And so Paul writes this letter, and it seems to have this warmth undertone, this friendly tone. He really does love this church. As I said, he called it their crown, uh, his crown and joy. But they were facing problems just like every church does. Paul calls them to persevere, to unite around the gospel, and thereby retaining their joy. If there's problems, unite around the good news of the gospel. Our joy and our unity is found in Christ and him alone. One commentator said, when you get the gospel, you get joy. When you focus on the gospel, you get unity. And so there are six challenges, and um, I'm not going to go through all of them in detail. Six challenges uh, through this epistle. First of all, spreading the gospel will cost, but Jesus is worth it. 
had a real good friend coming came around Monday night and we talked about evangelists and how different they are. Um, they just have that courage to either knock on doors, go into the, um, into the city and hop on a box and start. You know, they could be spit at or anything. They don't care. They have this gospel and they want to proclaim it. And evangelists are really, really uh, a different kind of breed, if you like. Um, they have this great gifting this courage that they have. You know, I'm scared as um, doing that. I've done that once or twice in the early stages. Uh, we had a big, uh, in Rangura, we had this big float, Christmas float, and I would give out tracks following our float. You know, and there was tons, there was Father Christmas and all this, but we had a float with a cross on it. Oh, it was embarrassing and it was really hard. You know, young people, Puh, religion, that's all you heard from them, stink, stink, rip. And I had to come back after the float had finished. I walked back and picked them all up. And it was like, this is shameful. It's like, oh, really hard. I found it really hard. But spreading the gospel will cost. But Jesus is worth it. Francis Chan tells a story. And I love this um, kind of analogy, if you like, of um, he said, basically, he's a head pastor. He was a head pastor, a cornerstone in the States. And you now they've got about 5,000 people. And he's got about six other pastors on staff, etc. And one of his, um, still a senior staff member, pastor of the church, was driving down the road. And he's telling the story to this packed out crowd. And one of his staff members driving down the road with his boy um, in the back. And he noticed, and that's his words, this old man and he was about 70, 75. That's not my words. But driving, and he come to a stop sign, and there was a cyclist beside him, and he just kind of veered over and knocked the cyclist over. And so this cyclist got up, and he was really angry. So he starts just banging his fists on this old man's car. He didn't do it on purpose, but, you know. And so this, this pastor's sitting watching this, going, oh, what should I do? Well, the cyclist who got knocked over goes around opens a passenger um, door and drags this old man out and starts beating him. And so this pastor of Cornerstone decides, hey, I'll leave my wee boy in the back, lock my car, and I'll go and try and separate them. So that's what he did. But trying to separate them, the cyclist starts beating up on him. And he goes, now what do I do? So he thought he could only do one thing. So he turned around with his fist and gave him just one uppercut and it knocked him out cold, the cyclist. Big man, but out he was. Well, the police turn up, and people are around looking after this elderly man, and the policeman says to him, how many times did you hit him? And he said, well, I just hit him once. And then the policeman said, what do you do for a living? And he said, oh, I'm a pastor. And uh, so this pastor was telling Francis Chan, the senior pastor, of this story, and Francis said he was just, he was just, energized and just wished it was him, that he could tell a story like that, you know. And so he asked his congregation, who would like to be in that situation? And all the men put their hand up straight away. All the young men, just boom, that would be such a cool thing to be part of, knocking a bad guy out. And Francis Chan said, wow, even some of the women put their hands up wanting to be a part of that story. But then he said, well, that's great that you're brave enough to do that and you go into that and just go, yeah, that's me. That's what, I, that's what I'd love to do. And, and part of me would love to do that. Imagine me telling the eldership that, that I did that. I don't know how they'd react, but it'd still be a cool story, wouldn't it? Even if they did sack you. And then, but Francis said, 
okay, so you're pretty brave at doing that. What's the chances of you seeing a 75-year-old man sitting in Subway all alone? Would you go up to him and share the gospel? Because he's in more danger than that, that guy who was pulled out of his car. How brave are we? Why are we brave enough to go into a physical battle, but not a spiritual one? And so spreading the gospel is hard, and it will cost. But as we look through Philippians, Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. Secondly, fight for your joy in Christ. Paul gives us the picture of this joyful service to the Lord Jesus and what it looks like. Be joyful. Rejoice. As I said 20 times, constantly. Be joyful. No, don't worry about your circumstances. That doesn't matter. Paul is in prison, and he is pleading with the Philippians. Rejoice. Have this joy. It's not found in anything. It's not found in, in what you have. It's found in the Lord Jesus. That's where joy comes from, and sometimes we've got to fight for that joy. Thirdly, maintain your unity of the Spirit. Unity is so important to God. We must maintain unity, forgiving and reconciling with others. Fourthly, be a great giver. This church was, and in chapter 3 and 4 it is mentioned, that's why Paul's writing this letter, because they gave him a great gift. This church wouldn't have been wealthy, um, but they were sacrificial. They were generous, they were cheerful, and they were loyal. Fifthly, learn what the gospel partnership looks like, what it means to be co-workers in this great mission we have. And sixthly, um, do we give the world a picture of what it really looks like to be a follower of Christ? Is that what your friends see? Is that what your people see at university or at school? This is what Christ looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Just briefly now, um, because I've, my time is actually up, as we look through and we look through that beautiful greeting, Paul starts off, doesn't he, in the first two verses I've got in chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a lovely, lovely opening. See how Paul starts off so differently, eh? He starts off so differently from his other epistles. You can go to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you can go to Galatians, you can go to Ephesians, and Paul starts off, Paul an apostle in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And he comes to Galatians, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is why I'm writing to you. In Ephesians, Paul an apostle, he stamps his authority. He's looking at correction. But notice how he talks and he starts off with this church at Philippians, Paul and Timothy, a bondservant, a slave to the Lord Jesus. Completely different. And I guess when he writes in Philippians 2 and 7 about the Lord himself being a bondservant, one who took the form of a slave, how could Paul start this letter? How could he start this letter with putting himself up as an apostle? So he comes in just as low, if not lower, than his saviour. And so our thoughts can go back to Exodus 21, can't they? Where the Hebrew slave or servant, if he really loved his master, he would get his ears, ears, ear pierced with a big awl right through it, and he would become this master's slave forever. 
Why? Because of his love, the way the master treated him and that his family is there and his wife is there. And he didn't want to go free. He just wanted to stay under. And so it is with Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. And we can even, in this book, going through this book, looks at Christ as a bondservant, amazingly. And he didn't have his ear pierced through, but he did have his hands pierced. And he did have his feet pierced. And he did have his side pierced. Always a bondservant. And so Jesus, it says, being in the form of God, took upon himself the form of a bondservant. That is incredible. And so Paul and Timothy, they start off. We're just bondservants in Christ. Then he greets the believers. What does he call them? Saints. You know, just a month or six weeks ago, we had this lovely lady. She'd done so much in Calcutta, Mother Teresa. But it took two miracles for the church to recognize that she was a saint. But here Paul starts off to all the saints in Philippi. All of them. Did they all do miracles? Did they all, after their death, have two miracles associated with them? No. No. Being a saint, well, did they perform really religious um, rituals? No. Was it their good works? Were they 51% good and 49% bad, so therefore it's a pass mark and they become saints? No. No, it was because they had changed their position. Once in Adam and in sin, and now in Christ. And so Paul calls them, as he would call us, saints at Philippi. Not at Philippi, saints at Hukunui. And what a lovely greeting. And then lastly, he just says to them, in this wonderful letter, it starts with grace, grace to you and peace. At the end of chapter 4, he finishes with grace as well. Free, undeserved favor. Thanks be to God. That is just what God has shown us as well. I just want to finish with a story. It's in small print. And uh, it's a story, uh, a guy, when I was down in Christchurch seeing my mum and dad uh, a couple of weeks ago, said, what are you speaking on soon? And I said, oh, Philippians. He says, here's an old book. And it's, it was a real old book. And it just had this story and, and looking at the start of how Paul starts off his letter with that word grace. And this is, and this is he was a missionary uh, in Hong Kong in the 18 um, or the 19th century. But let us remember it is grace not from pity, but from love. I write in Hong Kong, surrounded by tens of thousands of refugees in almost despair and poverty, misery and squalor. Daily I see the children in their rags and wretchedness, and my heart is moved with pity. And I seek to do what I can to remove them from this misery. In a measure I show them grace, though they do nothing to deserve help. But this grace is moved only by pity. But there are few here who I dearly love, and that makes a mighty difference. A few days ago, a dear child in whom I have known and loved for several years showed me the soles of her feet, or her shoes. And without saying a word, both had great holes right through them. And they were right through to the bare of her feet. So I bought her new shoes. And at the same time, I bought her a pretty new dress, for I think she had only one shabby one, and that was the one she had on. I paid about 90 cents for the lot. 
When I gave it to her, she climbed on her knee or on my knee and buried her head in my shoulder with her heart too full of words. And at last she looked up to me and said, Mr. Lee, you must have paid a great deal for it. My friends, this is grace. Grace not moved by pity, but moved by love. And who can say whose pleasure was greater? The child's or mine? And so we too, eh? We're going to ponder them great words. Grace to me, grace to you. Now very soon we are going to remember that grace that was given to us. And may our hearts not respond in formal thanksgiving, but may it respond like that child with the new shoes and the new dress. As it were, bearing our heads in the shoulders of God and our hearts too full of words, and then looking up saying, Lord Jesus, you must have paid a great deal for that grace, for this table. And now we remember him. Because we'll see in this book in a little while as we go through it in this book of Philippians, uh, this Philippian church, that Jesus paid the ultimate cost, the greatest price anyone can pay. And we'll see who he is and how low he stooped. And he paid that great price price for you and me. Chapter 2, verse 8, just ending with this. He says this, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death off a cross. Let us now remember him. Thank you.